Advancing innovative research, academic excellence, and family-centered care to transform outcomes for children around the world. Children's Mercy Kansas City presents the audio interview series, Transformational Pediatrics, with host Dr. Michael Smith. Our topic today is chronic abdominal pain triggers. Is personalized assessment feasible? My guest is Dr. Jennifer Sherman. Dr. Sherman is a child psychologist at Children's Mercy Kansas City, where she also serves as co-director of the abdominal pain program. Dr. Sherman, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So how common is abdominal pain in kids? It's actually more common than people realize. Um, There have been a lot of epidemiological studies just kind of to answer this question. And the best estimate is around 20% of kids at any given time are having abdominal pain um, that interferes with some aspect of their life. Um, So, you know, and that is probably the most common in school age and um, adolescents. Yeah, and when, when, you know, and how do these kids usually present? Are they usually going to their primary care physician or are they going into emergency rooms because of this? Well, it really varies. Um, You know, the costs of this are pretty high, um, both in terms of economics and also just social and emotional development. Some kids will just suffer in silence um, and they're with their pediatricians potentially um, treating them with just some reassurance and, you know, that that this isn't dangerous, it's not going to kill them, um, that they need to be going to school and doing all their normal things. Um, So sometimes pediatricians will be the front line for this. Other times the presentation is so acute that parents can't help but think that something very serious is going on and may have repeat ER visits. Um, It's very hard to manage an ER. Um, because there isn't anything obviously emergent going on. Um, And so trying to give some sort of assistance in the acute sort of short term is very challenging. Um, Some kids will end up hospitalized for a lot of testing, some of which is necessary and some probably not. Um, But the the distress around this is so high um, because it's exquisitely painful and can really affect kids' ability to go to school and just do all of their normal things. Right, right. And it really runs the gamut, right? We're talking about acute versus even chronic pain. We're talking about mild all the way to severe, uh, a variety of causes. I'm just curious, how many kids go undiagnosed with the pain? You know, maybe you control it, it goes away, and we just don't really know what it was. You know, it's it's an interesting question. I don't think we have great statistics on um, on the kids who don't seek treatment. What we do know is that for kids who at least present in some fashion to pediatricians or to GI physicians, if you follow those kids out, um, you know, most of those will continue to have uh, pain into adulthood uh, that that you know may be sort of considered subclinical, but they still struggle with it to some degree. It doesn't really resolve on its own, um, so we really yeah. need to be finding more active ways to treat kids um, so that there this doesn't become a lifelong problem. Yeah, and th- so this kind of brings up the next question then about what and, and it's what you guys at Children's Mercy ha- have been have been researching, right? Is what's what's the trigger for the, the pain itself. Why, why is that such an important question to ask? And, and why are the triggers for pain such a challenge, I guess, to like identify and monitor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it is really what we focus on here at Children's Mercy. And, um, I think part of what has put this on our radar is that there, as 
far back as, you know, aptly in the 1950s, they were using words like recurrent abdominal pain and was kind of a catch-all for all kids with any kind of um, GI pain, upper or lower, who didn't have a clear organic disease, something that was um, blood and pus and obvious, uh, easy to identify. And over time, the effort has really been to categorize that group of kids. We knew that it was really heterogeneous, that kids presented with different kinds of symptoms, but that they also um, had different levels of severity and maybe responded to different treatments. And so the goal at first, I think, was really to just how can we classify kids by subgroups of symptoms, symptom types, um, and maybe do more research on what kinds of treatments would best be suited to those subgroups. So the Rome criteria for functional GI disorders developed from that. We're currently in the fourth round, so Rome 4 um, came out just a, a few years ago. And I think what we've seen over time is that there hasn't been a lot of great traction in terms of understanding what treatments um, are effective for these different groups. And in fact, each time the criteria come out, the, the, the criteria shift a little bit um, because we were what we're finding is even though we've got homogeneous um, groups of symptoms, um, there are still the kids within those groups are heterogeneous on a lot of other factors. And so treatment studies are still getting very mixed results. And so what we've really tried to do at Mercy is to take a bigger, bigger sort of broader approach to that and say, okay, if diagnostic classification based on symptoms isn't going to drive forward our ability to um, treat kids and improve their lives, maybe we need to rethink how we classify them. We know that there's a broadly accepted biopsychosocial model for abdominal pain, um, and that really includes biologic factors, psychological factors, social factors, but the relative weight of any of those um, different factors is probably different for different kids. The, there's mm-hmm. probably a reason that, you know, when we, when we think about abdominal pain, and we certainly see some kids with, um, with the stress-related flares where they're experiencing more distress, and so they subsequently have more pain. But that's not universal, and it certainly is the case, too, that some kids with great amounts of stress have headaches instead of abdominal pain. So trying to figure out how all the pieces fit together, I think, has made this a very complicated picture. A lot of kids can end up with the same outcome, but through very different pathways. Yeah, so it it does sound very complicated, right? And 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 you know, just the fact that classifying them based on symptoms really didn't work when it came to treatment just shows you shows you how complicated all this is. So so I guess like where are we at then with this? I mean, how are we identifying triggers? Um, how are we uh, monitoring these triggers and how does that lead to better treatment and outcomes? Absolutely. So we've, we've started a line of research in this area. And I think our ultimate hope is that we could develop some sort of algorithm where, you know, you could feed in certain kinds of data and have the, have the sort of program help to identify which are the primary treatment targets for a given child, um, But where we started with all of this was in a a paper that we published in 2015 in clinical practice and pediatric psychology, um, where we looked at um, sort of theoretical uh, triggers. So things that people kind of commonly believed maybe influenced abdominal pain, 
Um, but instead of looking at these things sort of retrospectively, having kids um, self-report on things um, over the past months, or looking at this um, more at the group-based level, what we tried to do is look at real-time relationships between um, there were some psychological variables, dietary variables, social variables, sleep, um, allergen exposure, some of the things that we believed probably were related to abdominal pain in some way. And then we, d we did what was called ecological momentary assessment. So we would basically kind of break into a child's real life um, several times a day and just ask them a quick battery of questions about um, those specific things. So what did they eat so far? Um, what have they had to drink? What's their pain like right this second? Um, uh, and again, a whole host of different variables. We also collected allergen data from the roof of the hospital and fed that into the program. We looked at illness and things like that for kids as well. And what we did was we followed them over the course of a couple of weeks and then crunched that data so that we could look at was, were any of those triggers reliably associated with pain occurrence um, on the individual basis and across the group? And so could we find basically any support for some of those theoretical triggers being evidence-based um, and knowing that we would then need to consider those in treatment? And we right. were able to find a number of different things in the different areas that were evidence-based, some stronger relationships across the group than others. But the part that really has driven our, our research forward, in addition to just being able to kind of narrow the, the pool of, of things to look at, is that when we looked at two different children um, on one particular variable, and that was spicy food, um, it for the group ended up being sort of a minor trigger. Um, but when we looked at two specific kids, we found that it was a major trigger for one and not at all for the other. So that's the risk when looking at group-based kind of analyses is that sometimes if you have this kind of heterogeneous population, when you take the average, it doesn't really tell you anything or right. it isn't very accurate about what's actually going on within the group and what the individual treatment needs are going to be. So our second um, version of this project that we just finished looked at the acceptability and feasibility of taking this really to the individual level. So we did something similar in terms of following kids across a couple of weeks and they're just what we call free living environment, but just where they, where they live and, and play and go to school every day. And we would, again, ask them specific questions um, via a handheld um, device. And in our case, it was a loner um, cell phone that, was, that would kind of ring them at the right time. Um, they also wore an accelerometer um, and to track their physical activity and their sleep. And then we would basically, at the end of the two weeks, have them send that, that, those devices to us. We would crunch the data within a week or two and then have a follow-up visit with them where we could talk with them about the specific triggers for their pain intensity um, in the moment as part of our clinical care. And so, you know, trying to figure out whether that was something that we could do um, reliably, mm -hmm. how many times could we find um, individual triggers for a given child based on this, this amount of data, um, and then kind of what was the parent and child's reaction to that? How did it change our clinical practice? How acceptable was it to them? So both the logistics and sort of the impact. And so 
the nice thing with this work is that we found that our initial speculation that this is still a very heterogeneous group that has a, that no two kids are probably exactly the same in terms of their triggers really was borne out. Um, you know, we've collected now in this data on 70 children, and I have to say there isn't a single, like, duplicate profile in, in all of that. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, so no, there are some amazing. commonalities, but no duplicates. Yeah. Well, let me. Well, Dr. Sherman, that so so this this is this is a massive collection of data. Teasing all that out at the individual level obviously is is a huge undertaking. How ultimately do you see this then translating to everyday practice? Yep. Um, so right now we're just using this information to kind of help kids to understand what's unique for them and to potentially motivate them um, to engage in certain aspects of treatment that they might not otherwise have been too keen to. So if we find things like um, for them being afraid that they're going to have pain means that they actually do in fact have more pain, that stress stress and anxiety are a factor for them, then they may become more receptive to doing some of the treatments targeting that, whether that's cognitive behavioral therapy or biofeedback-assisted relaxation training. It certainly gives more weight to that recommendation, um, and kids will understand it in a different way when you can personalize it like that. In the long run, um, our hope is that we're going to be able to um, develop ways of assessing in a uh, assessing for the variety of kind of relationships that we've seen more easily and be able to push that out to say even primary care where where you know pediatricians as the frontline providers could actually collect a little bit of data run it through the computer program be able to identify the two or three key things for any given child, whether those are medication or dietary or psychosocial, and be able to get them on track earlier. Because the longer that we wait, um, the greater the developmental and learning and social gaps for these kids. Um, Our average time um, to get into our clinic has been two years just for them to Mm. find their way to us. And that's two years of lost opportunity in a lot of ways. So we'd like to be able to support pushing this kind of individualized assessment and treatment out um, much closer to the onset. You, you know, and of course, it's it, the, the personalized medicine, the personalized approach to anything we do is really where we're heading, whether it's the genetics mm-hmm. of it, whether it's understanding triggers like an adult. I mean, this is obviously where I think all of medicine is kind of heading. But of course, it's 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 as you say, it's complicated. It's 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 figuring out all these different touch points, all these different potential triggers. Yeah. And how do you how do you assess that in one individual? So I think what fascinating work. But I do believe it's going to have the impact you think it will because the more I can personalize my approach to a patient, the, the, the diagnosis, the treatment, the outcome is simply going to be better. And that's really right. what's key here. I, I got to tell you, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sherman, for the work that, that you're doing at Children's Mercy. It's fascinating to me. And I also want to thank you for coming on the show today. You're listening to Transformational Pediatrics with Children's Mercy Kansas City. For more information, you can go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.